Angela. Wendy. Yes. Wendy Davis. So we're here today and we're going to be talking about uh, a person from Bundaberg's history. And you're here because you're passionate about Bundaberg's history and you've got um, all the details and the facts at your fingertips. You have been researching. So can you tell us who we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about Dr Ewing George Thompson. Can you tell me why we're going to talk about what's interesting about him to start with? Well, it's a bit of a sad tale, but he was the doctor who injected the children with a diphtheria vaccination, Mm -hmm. 12 of whom subsequently died. Mm. What year was that, Angela? That was in 1928. Okay. But he's got a lot of history going, you know, preceding that. Yeah. And that is... um, you know, what I got really interested in. Mm. So not just him as a person in Bundaberg's history, but him as a person mm. altogether. And so obviously you'd been doing a bit of research around some other events at that time and he popped up as a name. Is that how you became interested he in did. him? He did. And then um, when we started looking into him, um, he had a very, uh, very interesting early life. And... You actually stumbled across him in an unlikely place as well, apart from yeah. digitised newspaper articles and other things. Where Certainly was that? did. I found him on the honour board at mm. St Andrews College, one of the residential colleges at Sydney Uni, which celebrated its sesquicentenary last year, 150 Okay, years. I'm just going to tell you, yeah. get you to tell us what a sesquicentenary mm. was. So that was for World War One. It was. Yeah, and so he, he was, um, well, he was born in... In New South Wales, near mm. Newcastle in 1888, he was the son of a Presbyterian minister and he was sent to Scots College for his education. Okay. Do you think he was a boarder there? or a... I'm sure he was a boarder there because yeah. his father seemed to be in parishes in various parts of New South Wales. Um, he, he obtained an arts degree at Sydney Uni. Okay. But then he went on to study medicine. At the University at, of Sydney as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. He graduated with honours from that in 1906. Okay. Hmm. And so that was still a fair way before World War One. What did he do in between 1906 and when he hmm. um, volunteered? Well, he was a resident at Sydney Hospital. Okay. Where he received glowing references Mm. for the work that he did and principally um, by a doctor called Archie Aspinall. Who was Archie? He was the medical superintendent in 1911 when he wrote a reference for Ewing Thompson. Right. But interestingly, you have to always look, you know. Find the other connections. Yes. Yes. Archie's father Mm. was the first principal and founder of Scots College, and Archie was the first student there. Do you think that would have helped Ewing Thompson get his position at Sydney Hospital? Okay. The the old voice? Yes, the old school tie. Mm. What did Archie have to say about Ewing Thompson so we can get a bit of an idea of what he was like as a person in his early life? Let me read you this work reference. Mm. Dr Thompson has been a resident medical officer at Sydney Hospital during the past years. He obtained honours at the university and has occupied the following positions during 
his years mm. at the hospital, house surgeon, house physician, house surgeon to the gynecological and ophthalmic wards, mm. also casualty surgeon. Goodness. He has had excellent all-round experience and is a very highly qualified medical man. Mm. I have known him for the last 12 years and can speak highly of his personal qualifications. That's a glowing work reference. And I think, do you think that was normal that they had such a range, that's normal for a resident to have such a range of experience across so many different areas, so. like gynecological through mm, to, yeah. op, 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 I can't even say it, ophthalmology. G, is that correct? Yeah, and at, even probably at the same time. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you've got something else there too, and this is also to do with his medical experience. Yes, yes. Well, this, this one is from this is a lovely letter of congratulations from Dr. Nash of two hundred and nineteen Macquarie Street, mm. whose telephone number, by the way, was four six two three. And on the eleventh of December, he wrote. My dear Ewing, all here are very much pleased to, to see, see that, that you yeah. gain such a good pass in the final for your Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery. And this letter is to, congr- con- to congratulate you on behalf of my daughters and myself. Right. Your father and mother will be justly proud of you. Mm. Now, this is good. Mm. There is no greater satisfaction in life than that which belongs to a parent when he sees his children worthily comporting themselves in the battle of life. Mm. We shall be glad if you could call that we may convey our congratulations personally. Mm. Your father and mother, please convey to them our best regards. Yours faithfully, Dr Nash. Yes. That's a beautiful letter. It sounds like um, he was more than just a colleague to that man, like he was part of the family. It does. Almost, doesn't yeah. it? And he talks about their the battle of life. Yes, which turns out to be quite prophetic. Mm, with what sort of comes next. That's right. For Ewing Thompson. Now he um he went from Sydney and practiced at Dungog, which is somewhere Where is that? somewhere Dungog? near Newcastle. Okay. I think so again. still in New South Wales. But then he went to Rockhampton. Which would have been maybe quite a shock. I'm sure. <laughs> but he his address in Rockhampton yes. was the Leichhardt Hotel. Oh. Anyway, okay. while he was there, he met Alice Hooper. Right. Who and came from Esher, which is a cattle station in Westwood, which is just outside Rocky. Okay. And does that still exist? It does. Right. And... He actually, the date of his marriage was the 28th of April, 1915, so okay. just three days after the landing at Gallipoli. All right, so he was still in Australia at that. He was in Rockhampton when he got married to Alice yes. Hooper. Yep. And then when did he enlist or volunteer? Nin- yeah, 1916. Okay, yes. so he had about a year. He did, mm. but I think he belonged to what is the equivalent of the Army Reserve. Oh, rightio. Yeah. I think he'd belonged to that prior to that. So he'd had some experience or knowledge. He did, yeah. yeah. And when he went to Europe then, mm-hmm. what was his position or what was, was his He was a captain. Job? Okay. And he was a medical officer, of course. Right. They sent him to France. Okay. 
And interestingly, you don't hear much about doctors being wounded, but mm. he was wounded in oh, France. Oh, okay. Was that, do you know if that was soon after he got there? Um, or? I think it was in 1918, actually. Oh, okay. Or maybe it was 1917. I'm not 100% yeah. sure on that. So he's sort of there for the second half of World War One, if we think about it, yes. in four years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Now, his war record and his war experiences are quite impressive and also mm. fascinating for a, a couple of reasons. Yeah, very much so. What was the what would be the first thing we well, would want to know about him? Notably that he during the Battle of Messines on the thirty mm. first of July nineteen seventeen. Mm. He is Messines in France, excuse my ignorance. Messines is actually in Belgium, isn't it? Okay. So but yeah, so in that same area like Region, yeah, yeah. but this was where um, he ministered to soldiers mm. in the battlefield, right, from about four a.m. Mm. until eleven p.m. at night, right. It was in the midst of the battle, you know, so a hugely um, active, right on the front line mm. kind of war experience for Ewing Thompson. Yes. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. It was really, um, you know, with total disregard for his own safety or mm, well-being. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that was um, mentioned in dispatches, as mm, they say. Yes. And the person who recommended him for the military cross mm. was the very famous General John Monash. Right. Now you've got something there that explains. Here, if I can. If you can find it. Find it. Here it is. There this. it is. So this is the actual document that yeah. we're looking at that says. Actions for which commended. Okay. For bravery and devotion to duty on the morning of the 24th of April in the vicinity of Highley near Albert. Captain Ewing George Thompson, RMO, tended the wounded in the open from 4 a.m. till 11 a.m. During this period, he was subjected to very heavy shelling and gas, mm. especially between the hours of 4 a.m. and 7 p.m., but he remained continuously at the aid post mm. and worked with great devotion and courage throughout the day. Although suffering from the effects of gas, mm contracted almost at the commencement of the bombardment. His rapidity in evacuating the wounded from the gassed areas was no doubt responsible for the preservation of many valuable lives. Mm. This officer personally assisted to remove wounded men under extremely heavy shell fire to places of safety, carrying out his duties for considerable periods whilst wearing his gas mask. Mm. His bravery and devotion was the admiration of the whole battalion. Wow. And that was the 42nd Battalion. Okay. And that was that recommendation by Monash himself. Major, Major yeah. General Monash. Yeah. So what we're saying there is he started the day, he was experienced the effect of gas mm. almost immediately and then he continued to work all day treating and you know, helping and doing his job basically without a thought for himself. Exactly. Mm. And we imagine that that wasn't just a single day that that was happening, that he, that was his 
that was his experience of the war. I'm sure. Mm. At the front line, you know, which he spent a lot of time at. Yes, yeah. Um, did his family know that he'd won that, been awarded that military you know, cross? Actually, if you go to the National Archives, you'll see a letter there mm. which was from February the following year where his wife mm. was notified that he'd received this um, commendation and that he would be receiving the military cross. Right. So mm. it took a whole year almost for anyone in Australia to know mm. of that experience and that he was going to be. Yeah, official sort of, notification. Yeah, anyway. right. Yeah, that's amazing mm. that it could, we would think that would be strange that it would take that long. That's right. Yeah, that was the time. Um, he had another sort of significant experience in World War One yeah, as well. He did. Um, he which something. Yeah, quite. Momentous. Um, yeah, momentous indeed. So this was also while he was in the battlefields. April 1918. The same, so the same year. That's right. As the military cross. An excerpt from his diary. Maybe so did he keep a diary for... He would have kept a diary the whole time he was there, we would imagine. That was fairly common. Yeah, I, well, it was very common. I don't know where it is now, mm. but these pages are on the website of Sydney University. Okay. Where will I start? Okay. So this is his writing about, let's bring it back down again, the 43rd Battalion. 42nd. 42nd. So we just took a minute there to have a look at this diary extract and it's written by Ewing Thompson and he in 1918. And so he writes, um, things were fairly quiet. The next day was fine and clear and, again, we saw, um, what's that say, something... Scrapping. Scrapping. Great scrapping. That's a term of mm. like flight, fight. Yeah. <laughs> I said that quite badly. In in the, in the air, we saw a German plane flying low in trouble over our lines um, and this Lewis. Yeah, Lewis and, and machine gun. Lewis and machine gun was turned on us and it finally crashed to earth. Then turned on it. Turned on it. Ah, okay. And then so the plane finally crashed to earth. Later on in the day, we heard that the occupant of the plane was the celebrated Baron von Richthofen. Is that correct? Yeah. Germany's most celebrated airman. So what do we know him more commonly as? The Red Baron. The Red Baron. Okay. This is, would have been quite a scene. He was well, okay, we'll get straight to the facts here. He was well and truly dead when he came down and he had bullet wounds through the chest, head and abdomen. Okay, so he's quite graphic in describing mm. that. A guard was put over the plane but soon a horde of souvenir hunters arrived and took possession of the show and took the plane to bits, okay, for souvenirs 
And in a quarter, quarter of, an of an hour, nothing but the engine was left um, and these engines were left and these only because they were too heavy to take. Right, well, that would have been amongst all the other things that people saw oh. on the battlefields. Um, memorable that would have been a fairly memorable occasion. Mm. So um, the Red Baron was well known in the war already. You wouldn't have mentioned him by name otherwise in his diary. Still is. Yes, he's mm. gone down in, in history as mm. a historical figure. So he actually saw that happen, saw the end of, end mm. of the Red Baron. So just with even those two events, his action at the military, with the military when he was awarded the Military Cross and the Red Baron, he was really in the centre of... Yes. Those theatres of war, wasn't he, in, yeah. in Europe? Yeah, and that's the amazing thing for me, Wendy, because, mm. you know, when the war ended, as you know, on the mm. 11th of November 1918, yeah. um, he was demobilised in January, yeah. so he he stayed on there until January. So that's January 1919. Yeah. He came back to Australia mm. and in May... He'd purchased a practice in Bundaberg. He purchased the practice of the late Dr. Eric McLeod Smith. Right. Which was on the corner of Maryborough and Wangara Street. Okay. So if we thought that moving from Sydney to Rockhampton was a culture shock mm. in some way, finishing in his the, in World War One, Yeah, in the front in line. That, yeah, and then suddenly finding yourself in Bundaberg in 1919. Can't imagine that. <laughs> unimaginable really no and going back to did he go straight into that private practice he did okay but I think also he was um a medical officer at the Bundaberg General Hospital as it was known at the time yes yeah which is what we now know as the base hospital yeah yes okay now we had this discussion about that address the corner of Maribara and Wangara and we're pretty sure that it was on the corner mm. not obviously st andrews not, not christ church not the winter garden theater yeah but the other corner people who don't know what the winter garden theater is that's where the gym and blockbuster video mm, that's right. became yeah. so yeah so the other corner is the most likely yeah we're we're speculating we're deducing that yes from the clues mm. um now and i want to tell you this this yeah. is a really interesting that military cross was awarded oh, yes. to him in Bundaberg in 1920 by General Birdwood. Right. Now, Birdwood came to Australia and toured. Mm. He was the British commander of the Australian Imperial Force for most of World War One. Okay. And he came to Bundaberg in May 1920. Mm. It was pouring rain. Okay. Thousands of people assembled mm. at the post office. Yep, which is the same post office we yeah. have today. Yep. He inspected the returned men, mm. mothers and widows of the fallen, mm. and he presented medals, including to Captain Dr. E.G. Thompson, the Military Cross. Okay, so that's 1920, yeah. so two years after the recommendation right. had been made. Mm. At the same time, he laid the foundation stone for mm. what was then referred to as the Fallen Soldiers Memorial. Okay, which is is that where the memorial mm. what, is now? Yeah, and what I've come to call the, the monument. Yes, the monument. Mm. I think lots of people call it that, don't they? Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We imagine that when you get the military cross, somehow yeah. the next day you turn around and you've got a mm. lovely um, medal, on, medal your on your chest. But it took a take or took and might still obviously yeah. yes take or, takes a long time for mm. that to actually actually happen. So General Birdwood. General, I had not heard of General. Birdwood. Birdie, they called him. Did they? Yes, I think he was regarded very affectionately yeah. by the Australians. Okay. Yeah, right. Even though he led them, you know, to disaster in Gallipoli and right. and also on the Western Front. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's not funny. Yeah. But, but um, it's nice that we give everybody a nickname of some kind, isn't it? That's our way. <laughs> very good. So, okay, so Ewing Thompson, so Dr that was, Thompson. Yeah, so he... That was 1920. So he'd been living here for a year yeah. with his wife. That's right. Hmm. Um, what was Bundaberg like at the time in terms of the medical community? How many other doctors would there have been in the town? Well, Do we know that? I'm not sure on about 1920, but I know that in 1928 mm. we had Dr Egmont Schmidt, okay, yes. Dr Haynes, mm. Dr McEwen mm. and Dr Robinson. Okay. Okay, they were all mentioned at in the other, time. other yeah. things. Yeah. One thing about um, Ewing Thompson was he was very active in the community. So mm. if you look back through the newspapers, mm. he was a he was a golfer. He okay. was playing golf at Bagara. Was he? Yes. He was the president of the Bundaberg branch of the RACQ. The RACQ. Yeah, we had oh, our own. We had our own branch. Yeah, they had driving gym carners. They called. What do you do at a driving gym car? I'd like, probably. I'd love to know. Like through different obstacles. And I think things. so. Yes. Sounds sort of fun. Actually, so he sounds like he was a man of action and doing, yeah, and outdoorsiness. So. He liked racing. He was a member of the um, so like horse racing, horse racing okay. club in Bundaberg. Right. And um, and did he have? Did he start a family when he, he had arrived here? here? Yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah. He. There are many um, tributes in the newspapers. You know, families thanking him for his wonderful service, mm. um, you know, provision of medical aid. Yeah, and right. Yeah. So yeah. On. Lots of personal notices in the newspapers. Okay, right. Yeah. So we might take a little moment and then we'll come back and we'll talk about yeah. 1928. So we arrive now with Ewing Thompson in 1928 in Bundaberg. So he's been here for about eight years, eight years? 1919. 1919. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's January. Yep. And he's responsible because he is the... Well, well he was a, a medical officer employed mm. by the council right. to give diphtheria... Vaccination. So this is the local council, mm -hmm. but working in conjunction with um, the vaccinations are supplied by a Commonwealth body. Serum, is that right? Commonwealth Serum Laboratories. Okay, so they would provide yeah. the vaccinations mm -hmm. to local yeah. areas. So, um, and I guess we talk about this and we remember this event because immunisation vaccination still is a touchy subject for whatever reason and sometimes quite a contentious issue for mm. lots of people. Um, do you want to maybe 
we've got something yeah, interesting there that it is. It came out of the Royal Commission that yeah. happened almost straight after. And it's interesting, died. yeah, because yeah. you know, as we say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm. And one of the um, comments in the Royal Commission from 1928 was that it should be emphasised that active immunisation is the only specific measure mm. at present known for the control of the incidence of diphtheria mm. and that there is no inherent danger in its practice when properly controlled. Yeah, so those last two words there are really key, I guess, to what mm. we're going to find out about now, the proper yeah. control of um, how things are administered. Of course. Yeah. But the most important point that mm. if you don't have immunisation, mm. you have these terrible diseases which that just run right yeah. through, the, through our culture, mm. through our society. So what was... Are you able to give us a bit of a rundown of the events yes. of this um, diphtheria? So the council, tragedy? Bundaberg Council Chambers were in Bourbon Street mm. near the post office, actually, in okay. 1928, yeah. where the Civic Arcade is now. Yeah, so opposite really where the bus park, opposite. Well, opposite where they the are council now. chambers. Yes, okay. More or less. Um, and the immunisations were carried out in the engineer's office. Right, and not you, in a doctor's office. No, if you look online, you can see the 128 pages of the report of the Royal yeah, Commission. Yeah, right. And there's actually a photograph of the office. Is there? It right. seems to have um, stretches piled up in right. one corner yeah. and a couple of chairs set up in there and a little table and mm. a fan. Okay. So it was, you know, very basic. Yeah. But that was where Dr... Thompson mm. and his nurse did the immunisations okay. and they did the first lot mm. using this particular batch yeah. on the 17th of January 1928. So when you say this particular batch, mm. that had come from the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory yeah. to Bundaberg. Yes. When it had been, when had it been sent? It had been sent in the September Previous? I think it had been it had been made in September. Okay. I'm not sure when he received it. Yeah. But um, and it had a batch number, didn't it? it was a batch, it was 80, batch number eighty six. Eighty six. Okay. And do you want me to tell you what was special about batch eighty six? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, the unfortunate background to this story mm. is that. The head of the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory at the time mm. was Dr. Morgan. Okay. And there had been a problem with combining antiseptic yeah. with the serum. Okay. Because it had been causing the serum to freeze. Right. So, so Dr. Morgan made the decision to mm. leave out the antiseptic. Okay. But... But the positive of the antiseptic would have been it would have kept the serum. It would have reduced the chance of it becoming contaminated. Right. Okay. In in multiple use situations. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he said, leave out the antiseptic, mm -hmm. but it's only now mm -hmm. suitable for single use. Okay. So you've got a bottle of serum. You can use it 
once on one person and then that's it? Or is that how it works? Well, he preferred, he recommended that instead of it being issued in glass bottles, mm. that it, the change be made that it be issued in glass ampules. Oh, yeah. To prevent the use of the mixture after it's been opened. So it would be a single use. Yeah, right. Um, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. they trialled that, yep. but the doctors found that that was inconvenient okay. when they were doing large numbers of injections. Oh, okay, because they'd have to stop and get a new one. Stop yeah, and get they a new didn't one. want to do that. Oh, okay. So they asked the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory to mm. go back to like larger bottles of the big bottles yeah. with the rubber cap. Okay. So, so what did a bottle of um, vaccination look like? A glass bottle? A brown bottle, and that's, okay. that's important too. Mm. Um, the A brown bottle with a rubber seal. Right. Now, when he sent these brown bottles out, mm. the instructions were that each package should be wrapped mm. with a notice yep. which told the doctors mm. that it had no antiseptic Yeah. And it gave them specific instructions okay. as to how... Like how to use it. How to, how to use it safely. And this, this is quoted mm. actually in the Royal Commission. The first thing that the warning says is mm. that this product contains no antiseptic. Um, he goes on to... The notice goes on to say that if you're withdrawing a quantity of fluid mm-hmm. um, and injecting it into a patient, yep. that you could, and then um, reusing that hypodermic, mm-hmm. the next time you withdraw fluid, you can be introducing bugs, right, which can then contaminate the serum. And yes. those bacteria can multiply within. This is all mm. in this warning notice. Yep. It says that the fluid would become cloudy. Mm. And um, he all, that also says the antiseptic yep. only inhibits bugs growing. It doesn't completely prevent oh, it. Oh, okay. Um, but there are specific instructions there about how to use it Mm. And it's still only single use, so you can't right. then store it and reuse it. Yeah, okay. Um, so the batch that came, that's a warning notice that was put on all... Every bottle was meant to be dispatched with that warning notice, but okay. unfortunately two batches were dispatched yeah. without, without the it. notice. And one of those which was batch 86... And that was the one that he was using. Okay. So he was not aware of that. He didn't receive the circular. Mm. The other compounding factor was the brown bottle. Yes. Because he couldn't see with Mm. successive uses how they might be changing inside. So most... So if you'd had a clear glass bottle, He'd have he would have noticed that it was gone that's a right. different colour or bubbling yeah, or that's something right. like that. Exactly. Right. So what happened was he and So these immunizations in 1928 in January went over a number of days. days Is that's that right? right? So as I said, the first one on the 17th of January, six children received their first dose. Mm-hmm. On the 20th of January, eight children received their first dose. Mm-hmm. 21st of January, three children received their first dose, mm. including his own son. 
So you and Thompson signed something. Yeah. Okay. So 17 children had received vaccinations, no trouble. Right. On the 24th of January, yeah. six children were given their second dose. Mm-hmm. One was given the first dose. Mm-hmm. On the 27th of January, eight were given their second dose mm-hmm. and 13 were given their first dose. So right. on that day, 21 children received an immunisation. Okay. Of those 21, mm-hmm. 18 became ill. Right. On that day and on the next day. Okay. On the 27th and 28th. Yep. On the 28th, 11 of them died. Right. And one died on the 29th. On the 29th. All little children. Yeah. That's. And what was it that happens to the vaccination? What was it that was the cause of death? It's not diphtheria. No. No. What is it? What happened. According to the Royal Commission, mm. um, was that in the process, in his his sterile technique mm. was not a hundred percent right. The doctor, the instruments were sterilised, yeah. and they were sitting in boiled water. Yeah, but instead of Doctor Thompson using sterile forceps mm. to to take those needles out of the sterile water, he took them out with his hands. Ah. So what's happened on the 24th of January yeah. is that staph, which mm. is present on the skin, mm. contaminated that water. Right. And so those needles that You're he was using yeah, ah. were contaminated. Yeah. He, he gave the children mm. on the 24th their injections. Yeah. But each time he use that needle to withdraw fluid from the, that bottle of serum, mm. he was putting staph into the bottle. Right. Then he finished that clinic. Yeah. Those kids went away. They were all okay. Yeah. Put the serum in the cupboard yeah. in his office yep. where the staph so was grew. multiplying. Right. So, and so that's why the second yeah, loss. The next day he did the immunizations the 24th mm. the, sorry the 27th it he got to a point where it was it was yeah fatal toxic mm. yeah mm. so those children developed um within like a staph infection yeah within hours like a toxic shock right. okay yeah and at that time nothing can treat that Really? No antibiotics. Right. No, that's the thing. Yeah. Actually, antibiotics were discovered mm. by Alexander Fleming in 1928, oh. but, but they were not available outside the military actually until the 1940s. So really? there was no treatment for those kids. Um, I didn't know that, about the history of medicines. No, I know. What was the – you don't know the – I need to know the reason for that. I'm going to have to look that up. It seems okay. Yeah. Right. So that so, was the combination of batch mm, 86 yes. and that circular and the colour of the bottle. Yeah. The doctor not strictly following sterile techniques mm. um, and, and there then being no treatment for, for those staff. children. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So 12 children lost their lives yeah. altogether from Bundaberg. Do we know anything about them? Well, we know that there were three children in one family 
Right. Two, okay. two boys in another. Yep. Um, you know, some some parents lost all of their children. Mm. Some fa- in in one family, mm. two children died and one didn't get sick. Right. So that okay. was a mystery. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the children was the son. Actually, two boys. Mm. The son of a counsellor at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. City councillor's son. So there would have. We could probably imagine that within the town at that time, there would have been a lot of people connected to that event, like knowing people, yeah. knowing people who knew people who were affected because it wasn't a big, you know, it wasn't the population that we no. have today. No. So it was hugely significant in terms of an mm. impact on the community, yeah. I would sort of hesitate, you know, not hesitate, I would sort of put forward. Mm. Um, do you think then that for Ewing Thompson as a, as a you know, doctor, as a practising medical mm. person? You can't imagine, can you, what yeah. it would have been like for him? But interestingly, there's um, a newspaper article mm. that refers to the parents mm. of the children who died visiting Dr. Thompson right. and offering them, offering him mm. their sympathy. Right, okay. And assuring him of their continued confidence in him. Oh, that's very beautiful, know, isn't that's it? Just very within a forgiving. few days. Yeah, mm. afterwards. Okay. What? So we've talked about the Royal Commission, mm. and I'm sort of astonished that it was set up so quickly after the event. It Do was. we know when that was set up? Well, these children died on the 28th and the 29th of January, and mm. the Royal Commission was already set up on the 2nd of February. So they moved really quickly yeah, to investigate what had happened. Yeah. Um, and it came up with some really valuable findings. Mm. Can you tell it us did. what they were? Yeah. Because yeah. um, they are actually quite fascinating in terms of what we do today as well. Yeah, it is. The findings um, were um, that... You know, the, the problem with the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory mm. issuing mm. those um, bottles without the information mm. attached, um, they acknowledged that the emission of the antiseptic was intended to safeguard the serum mm. against freezing, um, but that that should never have been issued like- in multiple in a in a container which was for multiple use, yeah. right? Um, they found that the bottle was contaminated, mm. most likely on the twenty fourth of January, mm. um, and that the staff mm. that, um, bacteria had been introduced. Yes, on that date, right? The recommendations were interesting. Okay, um, can you tell us what? Some of the key ones were? Yeah, the key ones were that um, they should have, if they're going to issue it in bottles, it should have the antiseptic. Right. That the bottles should be made of clear glass so they can see what's going on. Um, They recommended ampules Mm. for single use. Yes. Um, And... 
they also recommended that doctors use the approved techniques, sterile techniques, right. and, and recommended um, how to do that. Well, or... that there be special postgraduate training oh, for medical officers. Actually, okay, right. Who, are, who, who are would be doing that often? Public campaigns, yeah, yeah. of immunisation. Okay. Do you think how how is, is any what's changed since that time in the way that mm. we administer immunisation, like vaccinations? Well, I'd say that those recommendations are being adhered to. Still today, mm. yeah. So yeah. that was a huge lesson and sort of mm. tragic way to learn it, yeah. but a big lesson for um, medical practitioners and the medical mm. people in Australia. Yeah. Mm. But I think... You know, what it always saddens me mm. that this case mm. gets thrown up yeah. by the media or by anti-immunisation yes. campaigns. Yeah. But actually, if people knew the facts, actually it had nothing to do with the serum. Mm. It had to do with, with the, the sort of context and the process right. around it and mm. that things fell down in the communication of yep. sending and receiving the messages about That's what right. needed to be done. Mm. Yeah, because and the procedures. In my yeah. ignorance, I thought they died of diphtheria, mm. you know. That's That's, right. And so understanding that now, mm. it gives a whole new light on sure what happened and, yeah. you know, what the people involved like Ewing Thompson could and couldn't mm. control about, yeah. about, the, mm. um, about the event, yeah. I think. Yeah, he stayed in Bundaberg okay. until 1930. Yeah. And then he moved to Ascot where he continued to practice mm. until 1946. Yeah. So the fact that he was able, does, what does that tell us about him, do you think, that he was able to stay here in the community, which, you know, quite small at that time mm. in terms of people's reputations Yeah. Um, and maintained his practice? He maintained his standing in the community, but hmm. you know, I have read that of course he he was never able to get over it. No, um, and he died a relatively young man. Mm. But you know, as we know, he'd been gassed in yeah. World War One, so and had some fairly mm. significant experiences there. Yeah, there was a lot. There's actually that article you had there from the um, newspaper about the families going to visit him I think speaks to yeah. his personality and character as well. Mm. There's the other interesting thing about that, and I think it's different to today when there's ish medical issues and things where often people litigate. Mm. Um, but the town just seemed to band together to support mm. the people who were affected. They, mm. they established a fund for the children's funerals and for mm. their headstones. Mm. Yeah. So sad. Yeah. Yeah, we can't really comprehend what that have been, would have been like for those mm. families directly affected. Mm. No, it would be very different today, wouldn't it? Mm. I think so, yeah. Um, so that's the story of... Well, that's, you know, not the whole story, but a much richer version of Dr Thompson than we would normally get yeah. by just knowing about that one event. Mm. Um, 
and I think it's useful and really fascinating to look at where people have, you know, they're before and after. Yes. Does that not one event defines mm. him, his life, no, exactly. many aspects to it. Mm. So that's what's fascinating about that historical research. Where have you found most of these? Mm. Like where are your primary sources that you go well, to? Well, I like Trove. I love we all Trove. love Trove. <laughs> the uh, the National Archives, yes. got a war service records. Yeah. Sydney University's mm. got a, a memorial uh, for their World War One mm. soldiers. Yeah. And he's mentioned there. Yeah. So um, we're just it's amazing how much we can access yeah. that's digitized now compared to even say ten years ago, mm. isn't it? That we can easily find without having to actually visit no, the National Archives. <laughs> That's right. right. We can do it on our phone yeah. if we want to. Um, so, I think we'll find when we talk again that 1928, mm. early 1928 in Bundaberg, was we might call it a tumultuous time yes. in terms of events yes. in the community. That's right. Mm. Just one week after. Mm. Was it? Another event which shook the town. You could hardly think that they could um, cope with it, really. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I'll tell you about that next time. Okay. I'm excited to hear about that. Thanks, Angela. Thanks, Wendy. Oh, that was fun. We'll do it again. <laughs>